decoded. Welcome to this episode of Founder Tech Decoded. I'm delighted to be talking to Nick Muta, who is what I guess you could describe a serial entrepreneur. On the podcast, we often talk to people who have launched one startup, maybe one very successful startup, and then in this series, uh, people who have exited from that startup. In this case, Nick has, over the course of several years, sort of incarnated and exited and raised funds for multiple startups that have culminated in the launch of Moot, um, which has also seen him recognized as the EY Entrepreneur of the Year just a month ago. Um, having raised around 40 million across these startups and ventures, um, including an exit in 2018 and 19 with Almeida, um, I thought it was a perfect timing to talk to Nick about that story, about that arc as someone who has been through multiple kind of incarnations and exits and fundraisers, and therefore has seen the patterns consistently form over time, including the challenges, the opportunities, and the way, I guess, you structure things for an exit and continue your journey through as an entrepreneur, post that exit into the next iteration. Nick, it's a pleasure to talk to you and kind of be able to explore that journey, which is quite a, an evolved and uh, iterated one. Um, so thank you for being on the podcast. No, thank you for having me on. And it's, it's really interesting when you when you kind of think about it and hear that how how kind of much has gone on in that uh, in that decade and the different elements to it. So it's a great opportunity to be on these podcasts to to discuss that, reminisce and um, hopefully kind of uh, share my story. So when you reflect back on that story and you hear it like that, I'm assuming it, it, it was one of those things that emerged step by step. There wasn't a, you didn't have a master plan. It must have been that you did one thing that led to another thing. Is that, is that correct? Is that the nature of it? Yeah, definitely so. Um, I mean, my, my whole life as, uh, when I was younger was kind of mapped out to, to be a footballer and I played professional football up till, um, a, a very decent standard till, uh, my later years. And then, um, ended up in a, a car crash of, of all things and meant I couldn't play football anymore. So uh, I got forced to go to university in a wheelchair, uh, which led me down the path of, of business and, uh, you know, ultimately kind of where we've ended up today. Can we just for context ask what club you're playing for and did you get to kind of first team, you know, the youth team, what's, you know, at what sort of level, what sort of club, just to have some context on that? Yeah, I was playing for uh, Crew Alexander. Um, right. And you know we were the number one academy in the in the country at the time. Um, funnily enough, Steve Holland was our manager, who's now the England uh, assistant coach, and it's great to see him on the TV and, and whatnot. Um, so yeah, played to a decent standard. And to be honest, it was probably my father's dream for me to be a footballer rather than my own. Um, right. And you know, in in hindsight and looking back, it was never really a passion of mine. I was more interested in taking apart computers in my bedroom and putting them back together again. There's an interesting parallel there. I, I obviously didn't know that aspect um, uh, of your story, but there's an interesting parallel on, the, on the, the, the percentage of footballers that make it to an elite level is is beyond time. I mean, it's it's much worse than the often cited nine out of ten failure rate for startups, right? It's 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 so tiny the amount of people that make it, and yet those that that tip of the iceberg is all that we see. Do you, do you see that there's a parallel in that with founders that that have been sort of celebrated? You know these kind of WeWork um, founders or the Uber founder that are right at the top. Do you think that distorts people's perception of what it means to be a founder or an entrepreneur? Uh, I think there's two questions there, really. So I'd never thought about the kind of the success rate of um, football and kind of uh, a startup, but yeah, they're probably very attuned and and actually the characteristics are probably very similar. So some of the best players I ever played with and played against never went on to make it because they weren't the hungry ones and they weren't as tenacious. Um, and I think that's a bit like startups. There's some extremely talented individuals in, who are far brighter than I am and, and most, but don't end up succeeding because either they don't have the hunger or they don't have certain aspects of the things that you need in order to succeed. 
So it shows that it's not always talent that gets you into that small percentile of uh, high achievers. It's it's typically the most tenacious and the hardest working. Yeah, and and what do you think if you look at your own journey, which is you know is, is in your kind of like reboot, I guess, into into being a founder, into being an entrepreneur. You know, do you can you see that grit, that determination, that being a key differentiator? Like, can you can you kind of give us illustrate it through your journey? how that grits manifest itself. Oh, most definitely. And I think the the point that you find it is that everyone knows the kind of roller coaster analogy of startups and business. And it's in those low points and the bad periods where you've got a month or two months, three months worth of cash in the bank before you go bust, or you've had some kind of adverse event, adverse events, which means that, um, you're on the verge of disappearing. It's the ones that are, again, the most tenacious, hungry, and just resilient are the ones that get through it and ultimately succeed. We, we all, we've all heard the stories how most successful businesses at some point or most successful individuals at some point in their career have had failure um, or close to failure. And it's how you get through that and the people that kind of drive through that that tend to be the ones that um really succeed and make it where most just give up because they can't cope with the pressure of those periods um and i've certainly been in those periods god several times with um with different businesses and whatnot and you you've got to be a fighter you've you know i i use this analogy quite a lot that when you've gone through those types of adversity so many times you build up what i call calluses on the brain and it just makes you so much more resilient to those situations and allows you to deal with them in a much calmer, pragmatic fashion than if it was your first time experiencing those events where you you could be uh, stressed to hell and not cope and, and completely fall off the edge, which many, many do. Yeah, this is this this is really interesting. This has never come up, um, this idea of it, grit. The word grit's come up. I, I totally understand um what you mean where 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 you become hardened in a way it's not for me it's not you know like it's not the get up at four in the morning and grind and hustle I don't believe in that as a as a mentality I think that's neither do I I think I think that's nonsense and uh the the communities and the individuals that say that you need to work 20 hour days in order to succeed is, is absolute nonsense so let's let's actually dig into that because I think I, I I totally agree. Like I absolutely and I feel quite strongly about that that it is nonsense and it's just bragging rights. And I mean, someone pointed out to me that yes, sometimes who works in founder mental health says so some founders there will be someone who love getting up at four and you know they might have kids and they do their three hours work and they feel great and that's their just sort of circadian cycles are aligned with that. But for the but for the majority of people, if you're doing it just to brag about it. So, so what's the difference between the, the new LinkedIn, the new LinkedIn generation? Of yeah, 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 yeah. The breaking <laughs> right. So, so, but let's A B. Let's contrast that that which is which sort of is the neon sign, hustle harder, that kind of stuff, with what you're talking about. And maybe you can give us an, an example or two in your journey that, that highlights it's not that. It's not just working longer. You know, kind of whatever grinding out or hustling out the solution what what can you give it illustrate what you're talking about because i i, I we, this has never come out and i'd love to kind of get an insight into that there's loads of points in this um you know when people say oh i've got to work or i'm working what does that mean right like does working mean that you have to be sitting at a desk and carrying out some form of task or when you're waking up in the middle of the night and responding to emails, does that class of working? You know, yeah. it's a really subject, subjective uh, kind of uh, opinion, and I don't think there's a definition of it. And I think you just have to do what's right for you. And I'm kind of fortunate enough that I've been doing this a while now that I've learned what's good for me and what's right and what's wrong. And for me as an individual, I wake up extremely early because that's how my body works and yeah. that's just who I am as an individual. So I will be doing things like sending emails, checking data, whatever it may be at very early in the morning. Yeah. But the people who work with me or have worked with me know that when I hit 3 p.m. in the afternoon, I am useless. 
Yeah. After 3 p.m., I am useless. So if I have anything that's relatively important, you know, an important pitch or meeting or, or something like this on the podcast where you want to make sure you are coherent, if I did that after three o'clock, I'd be, I'd be useless. So I've just learned what's good for me. And I think people just have to do that and they have to learn. And everybody has their own way of working. I don't think there's a set way of working and, uh, you know, you have to work 20 hours a day or you have to do this or you have to do that. Um, I personally, if I don't feel like I've done enough or I'm doing enough, I feel guilty with myself and think, what is the competition doing? And maybe that's the inherent competitive side of me. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of what drives me. It's like, well, I need to be working harder because someone may be working or doing more than me and we've got to be doing more than somebody else. And I, I still have that, whether that's right or wrong. And I have to feel like I've done enough in that individual day. And when, when you talk about kind of, you know, when people say to you, what's your six month or 12 month plan or things like that. Um, I don't really focus on too many things like that. I'm more short term. So yes, we will have to have a purpose and a mission of where we want, what we want to achieve. But I'm very much kind of short term focused that every day I want to ensure that I made a step forward in a certain thing that's going on at that period of time. On a Friday every week, I want to look back and say, what have I achieved this week? How, how further forward are we this week from last week? And if I don't feel like that we've made a material difference or material change from this week to the last week, then I know that I need to do something better or uh, to a greater degree. So I'm waffling, I'm waffling here, but no, you're um, not, you're not. You're, it, you're it's not. just, it's just, it's just kind of how my mindset works. And I think what I'd say is just do what's right for you. If you're a nocturnal person, work nocturnal hours. If, if you, if someone's telling you, you need to get up at four or 5 AM and, and work 12, 14 hour days, tell them to get lost because that's just not what works for you. And it's not when you're productive. There's a really great podcast, which um, is getting a lot of traction at the moment, which is the high performance podcast by Jake Humphreys. And, he he covers a lot of this stuff with uh, people from sports disciplines to business disciplines and, and all sorts. And it's a really interesting um, thing to hear uh, how everybody works differently. And there is no answer. I think that's the summary here. There is no answer. There is no right or wrong. You've just got to do what works best for you. I'd like to sort of give that a little bit more kind of uh, um, nuance, actually, that I think that the aunt, there's so much emphasis on you know early stage initial founders. There has been this myth of that founder, an archetype of that founder. But I think what you're saying, which is, I mean, obviously that that's valid, right? There are people who just you know start for the first. You have to, everyone has to start for the first time, obviously by its very nature. But there is something around the founder, and we'll get to kind of whether this fits around the concept of founder market fit when we get, which is at the end of the switch deck, which we'll which we'll get to. Um, but what I hear you saying is that. So I have a friend who says every a really good entrepreneur will always win over an arc of 10 years. So if you back a really good entrepreneur, they will outperform the market over 10 years. Whereas if you measure them in the short term, um, you, won't, you won't see that insight. And what I hear you saying is something like that, that over time, the good entrepreneur, and I think this is, this is the parallel of what you're saying with footballers, will, will reflect on themselves and understand what motivates them, what guides them, what stimulates them. And so they get more, they acquire or accumulate more efficiency or can contain more efficiency, which means they become better and better and better. The bad entrepreneur doesn't have that behavior. Is, is that a good sort of summary of what you're, what you're saying? I think that's a different topic. And <laughs> that's something that's uh, certainly true. Um, I think it depends what type of person you are. So when you, there's different people, types of people that start these businesses, right? You have the commercial uh, side of people who start businesses, which tend to be more maverick, less structured, and probably crash too soon because they don't have the discipline and structure. And that's me. So when you get time to learn those things and improve those things, then I certainly agree with your friend that, that person has the core capabilities and traits to succeed hugely successfully within that decade, because when they do learn those things and get it right, they can outperform everybody by uh, a million miles. Right. Um, but it takes some people longer. Then you've got the other side of the spectrum, which is probably your more introverted uh, and more probably the, the higher intellects 
who are less commercial, who can build great product, but um, never really kind of get it to market and don't have the ability to push it forward. So it, it, I think it can take different uh, routes, but you know, you look at uh, a sport analogy, one of the ones on the high performance podcast uh, was Eddie Howe, yeah. who's the, the manager in Newcastle. And, you know, he did okay at Bournemouth and he got them up, but he regarded them um, failing in, in the Premier League and going back down as, as failure. Sorry, not failing, but as, as going to get relegated as failure. Where some people say he was an extremely successful manager. Um, he would then went away and completely retrained his brain to fill in the gaps of where he felt he was weak and has come back to be arguably the most successful manager this year. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's, he's in that kind of the end of his decade of um, his managerial career. So, yeah, there's, there's lots of different uh, situations, but I think time and experience certainly allows you to be far more capable than, than at the start. So let's just let's just dive back and go from time from from 2018 to 2019. If you can just talk about that experience as, of your exit, and then can we talk about you know your recent inve- uh, venture with Moo and how that how you you know EY recognised you last month as the entrepreneur of the year? Can you just give us that bit of the journey before we then dive into the the switch deck? Yeah, so um, I mean, I started a, a, a very small kind of digital agency practice, which was my first business. Um, you know, it's a kind of two, three man band job. And we, we started and launched, uh, companies like the lad Bible, um, the hook group and a couple of others and, um, had great success with that first business and, um, exited out of there, uh, very early on and started my first kind of true tech business, which was called Admedo, um, in 2013, something like that. Um, and that business made a number of acquisitions. It made some partial exits um, over its time. And I finally moved away in 2018, 2019. Um, and that was one hell of a journey. And I learned so much. Um, and it's crazy because at the start, you think you know a lot. And by the end of it, the amount you've learned and the experience and the network and the connections and everything you've built um, you know, it was most incredible time of my life for many reasons, but also the most hectic and the most um, unhealthy period of my life for many reasons. You know, I, I ended up in hospital with angina attacks through stress, um, but I had one of the most successful ad tech companies to ever come out of the UK. And we grew that out across the UK, Europe and the US and, and had huge clients and um, did amazingly well from it. So that's the roller coaster, isn't it? <laughs> I could I could talk about that journey for uh, for long periods of time. The the good investment we took we took, the bad investment that we took, and what all of that looked like, and what I learned from it, and what I'd do again. Um, and then, as you say, I, I kind of moved away from that business, and uh, I ended up really strangely starting a uh, an e commerce brand, a homeware e commerce brand. Um, through chance really just where I saw a little bit of an opportunity and when I look I was always fascinated by the you know the emergence of e-commerce and the the shift over to it Um, but what really staggered me with it was that there was this kind of stereotype of uh, e-commerce businesses that they were incredibly lean and you know cheap to start and all of these things but actually they were just the same as any other retail business you had to select stock and find product, get it manufactured in Asia, get it um, shipped over, warehoused. It was very capital inefficient. Um, it, it wasn't really kind of what people thought it was. So I wanted to create a model which allowed us to leverage the stock levels of other businesses, uh, of wholesalers and suppliers as our own, and create greater automation within the sector, um, particularly the homeware. You know, every single individual in on the planet in this country can talk about how long it takes them to get a sofa or some form of furniture when they've ordered it. Um, and it was just really inefficient. So long story short, end up starting uh, what is called Olivia's in September, 2019, um, which focused on mid to premium homeware, um, underpinned by a lot of proprietary technology, which carried out that model of uh, leveraging other people's stock levels as our own and syndicating that. Um, and probably what now people would regard to as a marketplace. Yeah. 
Uh, and that business just grew like a weed. You know, we we got to 18 million in revenue run rate within a year. Wow. You know, it, it was nuts. And, you know, we won several awards for the fastest growing homeware business in the UK and different things. We acquired uh, our biggest competitor within six months called Houseology. Um, we then launched a third brand um, just after a year. Um, so had huge, 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 huge success with those e-commerce brands. And they still go now and they're in the best position they've ever been uh, and still uh, underpinned by the same uh, operational and financial um kind of uh, benefits that we, we saw in the first, which is being extremely capital efficient um, and having a, a positive working capital cycle as an e-commerce retail business, which again is unheard of unless you're some form of dropship company. Yeah. Um, and, and that's now Moot is, is incarnated into Moot.com? Yeah. So what happened was we, as we were growing out the homeware brands, we started to build more of our own proprietary technology as um, we started those on Shopify like most people do. And we very soon realized that Shopify is an incredible tool for helping you get started. But very quickly, um, as you achieve scale, you hit a capability ceiling of Shopify and there's lots of functionality that you need in order to be able to scale that it just can't provide or do. And you know, some people resort to the app marketplace, but they're all kind of small tools that don't really uh, enable scale and they're not built for scale. So yeah. we started building a lot of our own proprietary technology to solve these problems. You know, it was kind of the question of how do we how do we achieve the next stage of our kind of growth journey um, and how do we enable that? So once we started building it, we were eating our own lunch for our own brands, but then realized that, hey, you know, we, we need to start selling some of this. Um, because there's other people out there who've got the same need and frustrations as us. Um, and we started doing that maybe 18 months ago. And that's where the technology spun out, which is, is the technology of that uh, company spun out, which is now Moot. And we power some of the biggest brands in the world um, and are developing e-commerce technology that I believe is the first of its kind um, that nobody else is doing across the globe, which is we're implementing artificial intelligence and machine learning into e-commerce experiences to create better personalization and customization for uh, not only consumers, but for the retailers. Um, and we're actually just adopting technology that the advertising and marketing world has seen for the last decade around personalization within advertising and marketing. Um, to increase those propensities to convert and allow customers to have a, a better user experience. Um, and so then, that, that business is still very much in its infancy, um, but has, has seen great uh, scale and traction already. And um, it's probably the most exciting uh, thing I've ever been a part of. Um, and the future of it uh, is, is so interesting to see how things are going to pan out because e-commerce e is still in its infancy. Um, so the whole industry is, uh, you know, as a whole is, is going to see a lot of change over the next five to 10 years. And I think that the things that we're doing can really be at the forefront of that. And would you say kind of closing the loop that this is like you hitting the end of that decade arc in this incredible place with all that learning, is it, is it roughly on that timeline or some, some kind of art? It sounds like it's that kind of arc. Uh, God, you're putting me under pressure there, Dan. Um, I, <laughs> I'd like to think so. Um, I'm not really one for huge self-belief, but sure. I believe that I personally am in a far more knowledgeable and experienced and better place to help something succeed to the scale I want it to than ever before. Yeah. And the team and technology that we have are also akin to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I... Uh, you know, we, we all, everybody strives for this large exit, right? Which makes them some kind of unicorn status. Um, and I, I, you know, whether we do that or not, I don't know. I've got my own personal ambitions and so have our shareholders and whatnot for the company. And yeah. that we can certainly do that. Um, when, whether that's in two years or five years, I don't know. Um, but right now I'm just focused on, growing the company and achieving what we're set out to do and kind of achieving our purpose. 
But now I've got this image of tomorrow being Friday, today being Thursday, of you with a, you know, some whiskey reflecting on your week, feet up on your chest, <laughs> stroking your cat, going, yes, good week, good week. Really, you know, that's my image now. Um, let's let's dive. Um, so, we, so we've still got some time to explore. Let's go to the switch, the switch deck and see. Um, you know, uh, which is uh, again a synthesis of um, the the first three series of all the insight from twenty to platforms, investors, and founders in this broad, through this broad founder tech lens. Um, and and let's just go through them. Feel free to sort of challenge, push, embellish, dismiss. Um, they are there to do that. Um, and let's just take them one by one. Um, so the first one is that venture is at a crossroads. That actually, if you look at venture. It's quite strange in that it has no problem going into any other sector, like you, as you just describing in e-commerce, right? It has no, even the statement that you said is just at the beginning, it's a really interesting uh, a statement which we, we could unpack in itself. But the idea that it can go into industries, go into sectors, look at legacy models, inefficiencies, you know, weak competition, um, market standards, and come and radically reinvent those things to be, you know, the next generation or next iteration. But when it comes to a venture looking at it itself, it has been reluctant to do this. And yet it is highly inefficient, highly unsatisfactory for most people, you know, most founders and investors. Their experience is, is, I was with an investor yesterday, so he just, you know, he's constantly bombarded by irrelevant founders and information from all from all sides of kind of like, which is about EIS. But if, if, if you talk to any early stage founder, you know, it's not good. Even people who have started things, who start them again, who we're talking to on this podcast, um, they find that even when they're second, you know, second uh, startup in third something, it's still, it's still a sort of making finger in the air stuff. Um do you agree with that premise that actually, you know, the the concept, the fact, the venture basically needs to evolve itself and is at that crossroads where it needs to do that and become, you know, a different kind of animal? In which aspect? Because there's lots of. <laughs> um, just let's just. There are lots of aspects in that. Um, we'll we'll get to some of the other ones later. Just just in almost like, is it at an inflection point where? you know, in two years, it could, in the same way, it's a lazy go-to, but in the same way Uber arrives out or Deliveroo arrives, and within two years, there's new market norms because suddenly you're actually getting technology creating a massive amount of efficiency and double-sided marketplaces, you know, like working really well and bringing people together in a much more aligned, efficient way. Do you think um, the industry is ready for that inflection point and getting to that point and, where, and we could be at that point in the next couple of years? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, 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 I think that um, the UK venture scene has far more uh, things that it needs to tackle and address than um, adopting some forms of technology to make them more efficient or anything like that. I think that the, the, the UK venture scene is so disparate, it's so fragmented, it's so inconsistent. Um, and a bit like good startups, it's very hard for the good ventures or funds to shine through from the, the no, not yeah. so good ones. The signal to noise problem. Yeah, because yeah. they all say the same thing, right? They're all, they all say they're unique. They all say that they offer far more than just capital. Um, and... I don't know if many do. Um, I think I've, I've sometimes been very critical of the UK venture scene, and I'm also very um, uh, positive and supportive of it in, in other matters. Um, I actually wrote a piece on this the other day where and the, the differences between the US and the UK venture scene. So how UK uh, venture will never apply the same multiples on businesses as US. They will never write such as big checks and you'll never get the same valuation in the UK as you would as in the US market. But that's almost turned into a benefit at the moment because it means that with the market changing and multiples normalizing back with other industry, back to other industries, that there's less likeliness of a down round compared to the US businesses who have raised huge amounts of capital on obscene valuations who are yeah. now stuck in that position. Yeah. So the, the, the preserved, pessimistic, uh, cautious nature of UK VC has almost uh, helped them by 
being a bit more cautious. I think that deal flow is nowhere near what people think it is as well within the UK venture scene. Like there's, if you actually look at how many significant venture rounds there are, say 10 million plus in the UK from UK backed business, UK started businesses, there's not a lot. Like there really isn't a lot. Like there's not a lot of checks being uh, written. Now the SEIS, EIS world, there's quite a lot there. Um, but again, there's so many different funds. It's like, what space do you, you talk to them? They say, what space do you play in? And what size checks do you write? And uh, it, it's just so disparate. It's, it's really hard for anybody to understand. And um, I think, God, I could talk about this for hours and so many different subjects of it. But what you're seeing in the US venture scene as well at the moment is that they're starting to come further downstream and write smaller checks than they did before because they feel like they're missing out on deal flow and it's getting too competitive in those yeah. larger rounds um, because the, the good businesses can pretty much pick and choose which uh, venture fund they want to go with in the US where we don't get that in the UK. Um, you've pretty much, if, you, if we go to um, slide two, you've pretty much covered literally, literally without, without prompting. You're oh really? Over, you're talking about about exactly this quality f deal flow is starting pre-product, and there's this funding chasm. But, that, but, but that's that's also a misconception, I think. So I'll give I'll, I'll, I'm happy to give this very transparent view of uh, my company at the moment, um, Moot. So if you look at Moot, it is still very much in its infancy and is building technology which has never been built before within its industry, and the investment that's needed is purely for R&D and then to help take the business further to market. Um, despite us having close to double digit millions in uh, ARR during development, when you talk to a UK VC, they're not interested in our technology or our proposition. All they care about is our P&L. So you can't, oh, and customer data. So how can the UK venture scene be investing in new technology and helping driving innovation for a long-term large exit when all it's focused on is the P&L of a business whilst in development and its customer data? Why do you think that is, Nick? Why do you think that's the case? They're because it goes into a model. It go, I, and I think someone put it out on LinkedIn the other day, which was brilliant. And actually, one VC shared it with me the other day. That yes, they have to tick a few boxes when they first speak to someone. I is the founder, uh, you know, know what he's talking about and backable. Has he got a, a, a reasonable team around him? You know, is the product reasonable? It's not kind of some wacky thing. You know, if you, you kind of tick those three boxes, which isn't really difficult, is okay. What do the numbers say? They then take the numbers from a P and L put them into a template formula that they have internally that either spits out yes or no. Yeah. And that is what decisions are made from. Yeah. There is no um, subjective views. There is no kind of actually this technology is incredibly interesting in the way the world's going to be in the next five years in order for the, 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 um, the country and brands to adopt that in the next three to five years, it needs to be built now. So for it to achieve all of that, we need to invest in this now to realize that long-term value gain, which yeah. is what venture capital is supposed to be. Um, that doesn't happen because, honestly, I could share some crazy feedback I've had with you over the last uh, few years from venture firms. Um, you know, I had, whilst we were in development, um, you know, we, we didn't even have a sales team, right? Didn't even have a sales team. And we'd got to 6 million in ARR from inbound without even a website. And a fund turned around to us and said, yeah, I'm afraid because you haven't grown 300% in your first, in from year on year, from your second to third year, I think it was. Um, it's not interesting. I said, we're at 260 something percent and we don't have a sales team and we've burnt pretty much no cash. And they're like, yeah, sorry, the computer says no, basically. And let's let's stay on this because it's super interesting. Why delve into that conversation slightly more? What's going on? 
I mean, I understand the PNL thing. Is there anything else that's going on between? Well, you... they've got to report. They've got to report to their LPs, haven't they? Yeah. And in their report, they've they've promised that they only invest in businesses with certain metrics in order for them to realise these colossal returns that they they uh, tell companies they have to achieve. And if they invest in businesses which may not cut it on one of the metrics that they're supposed to invest in, then they have then they could have the finger pointed at them if, if things don't go right. Um, and listen, I'm not a venture capitalist. I don't know what it's like to be the other side of the fence. So uh, a lot of this is quite presumptive and it's from hearsay and, and, and what people tell me. But, yeah. you know, when, when you speak to a venture fund and they say to you, yeah, we, we don't look at things, we have to uh, realise a 30 times return on our investment so why it's not interesting for us, right? This And that's a very normal thing for venture firms to say in the UK. How many venture firms does anybody know from the UK that's ever returned and 30 times investment on average across their portfolio. Yeah. I don't know any that's achieved five to 10. So why, why wed to that number? Because, you know, it's that whole rule, isn't it? That two will become unicorns. So many percent will, you know, have a reasonable exit. So many will die. So on that basis for them to realize the return, they have to try and back everything, which they think can give them a 30 times return. Yeah. Well, we could, I think, have a separate episode on this conversation, literally this aspect. But maybe we'll come back to it in a minute. Let, let's go to the third sort of insight, which is, uh, again, we, you, you can just, I, I really appreciate the pushback on, on the, the first couple, or the, certainly the first line. But this is the idea that the pitch deck is a legacy tool. So we've talked about like the, part of the problem with venture. And maybe this is, is, there is a through line here from what we've just been saying, is that it's relying on legacy tools and models to make inform its decision making. One of which is the pitch deck, right? The pitch deck is the, is, 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 is generally what's filtering the top of the funnel. Um, and my contention is no one would design the pitch deck in the way it is to tell that story um, today. Certainly not about you know compelling founder story and insight and things we've been talking about. It doesn't communicate that. And essentially, it's not fit for purpose, and it drives founders ballistic, um, you know, bananas, maybe better word. You know, in the iterations, they generally have seven iterations because people give different feedback that's just random. And then the irony is if they eventually can use one to get over the line and get funding, the investor that's driven them bananas around this picture never refers to it ever again. And they never refer to it. It just sits in their, you know, their drive, and they kind of, like, forget about it. So, like... I guess it is part of what we're saying. Firstly, do you do you agree with that inefficiency? Do you agree that it's a legacy tool? And then, if if so, I guess it is an example of then why be wed to it if it's not very good? Change it. Like, is it does actually feel like a continuation of what we were just saying, though? Um, I don't believe that it no longer has interest. But what's far more important and holds far more weight than any pitch deck is who introduces you to the person at the fund yes, and how you're introduced. Yes, yes. yes. If you're introduced by someone that they know and believe in and all the rest of it, then that's what gets their attention over any other, over any pitch deck. And to be honest, I could talk about what I think pitch decks should and shouldn't include and what they should be. They should be short, snappy and straight to the point. Um, but most of the time, they're just to to get you the ability to range a first meeting. And that's it. As soon as you've got that first meeting, the pitch deck is completely thrown out the window. It's having a conversation with the founder uh, of an introductory um, kind of uh, introductory piece of the business. So the, the deck no longer holds any value past getting in the front door. Once you're in the front door, the deck becomes irrelevant so um, yeah so uh, and, and but, there is, but, there's, but there's two decks right so you've got one which is your short form deck which gets you in the door you've got your second one which is probably a little bit more comprehensive which has some data in it and you typically have to send the second one if the person that's introduced to you doesn't hold enough weight and they don't believe in the introduction from them um so yeah, and I, I, maybe I've been fortunate, um, but I've never had trouble getting in any doors, and I always managed to get a first meeting. So that kind of first pitch deck has almost become irrelevant. Yeah, let let let's move on because we've got some ground still to cover. I, I think again, you're you're totally right that the that it is two instruments, you know, and its purpose is to open up that first meeting. And I think the and the highlighting that um, 
introduction, the credibility of the introduction, you're right, is, is, is the secret ingredient behind the pitch deck that makes it have value and currency. And without it, it's just a sort of like flotsam and jetsam in the system. But okay, so number four is, um, it kind of ties into the, the earlier conversation that actually there's this rise of syndicate founder and solo driven capital, which is gaining traction. And it's getting in the US, um, that's, 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 they're ahead. But, you know, like solo capitalists who have $30, $40 million under management of their own capital or other people's capital that they can make decisions on. Um, or, you know, syndicates um, that can be formed really quickly now um, and, and people acting together um, very quickly as kind of a cohort to invest in things. And founders, like, you know, exited founders, you know, seeing the problems. I, I For me, I find these developments super interesting and what's going to drag the market, the ecosystem into a new place. What, what's... Do you have a view on that and experience of that? Are are you one of those things? Are you in one of those syndicates? Or have you um, have, do you know solo capitalists? You know, what's your experience of that? Um, I think that they are a great idea and they truly have the ability to offer more than capital. Yeah. Um, when you take investment from those funds, because the individuals are personally invested, and I don't just mean from a capital point of view, but I mean mentally. Yeah. And when you've got their mental uh, involvement and kind of willingness to help participate and help you succeed, then that's far more valuable than I think any fund. Um, so I think they're great. Uh, as a founder, that's certainly the type of uh, people I'd want to take capital from in the early stages of business when you don't need to have huge checks being written. Um, and I'm sure the, less, the terms are less onerous. Uh, I have worked and uh, I am working with a couple of funds which are kind of like that. Um, and they're great and I have superb relationships with them. Um, Can you share that in a we have We have some news to announce hopefully in January of uh, one which we're hoping to work with, which is a, a similar fund. Um, and that is uh, going to be industry leading in the UK and it's probably going to be the first of its kind. Uh, and, and we'll have more kind of awareness than any other of these syndicates. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to that, hoping to come to fruition. Um, or hoping that it comes to fruition, should I say. Um, so, yeah, I think they're a great idea. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's regulatory type of things behind that and uh, certain things that have to happen in order for it to kind of uh, get the, the, the kind of uh, right governance. Um, which I don't understand and I don't know too much about, but um, they're basically mini PE funds, aren't they? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But 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 com- and I, and and potentially uh, some EIS in there. Yeah, and I think the key thing is, you know, they, they can back from a distinct point of view. Like you know, they have a distinct point of view on a sector with expertise and genuine value and networks and leverage, and can move quickly. That's what I think is, is and you're, 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 you know, corroborating that. But that's that. That's what I think is super interesting, empowering that kind of decision making. Um, next, next, I'm going to take this as as kind of two the same. So five and six are like this: the leveling engagement is now a value add asset, and open communication is becoming a currency. So what this is trying to say is like this traditional asymmetry that's existed between the founder and the investor, and the investors, you know, the particularly sort of like bad faith, even angels or, or, or VCs love that asymmetry. They love leveraging that. They love having, you know, you just send me your pitch deck and I'll come back to you whenever I want on not being clear on timelines and parameters. But increasingly, the leveling that, so there's just a respect between the founder and the investor that is on a, you know, and, that, and that's a key signal of a, of a worthwhile conversation and also open, uh, point six about open communication. You know, if, if you get true feedback and That's reasoning right. and uh, explanation, you you hold far more value and respect for that fund than, than anything else. And um, they're the ones that you would want to continue speaking with and potentially deal with. Uh, That's the first. A friend, of, a, a friend of mine, Oliver Yonchev, posted up um, a thing on LinkedIn the other day talking about investment and who to take it from and where to take it from. And I commented on there that, What's far more important than the capital is the investor, because taking capital from the wrong investor is far more detrimental um, than taking, uh, you know, no capital at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So just be very careful about the type of investor and make sure that you are getting in bed with somebody that you truly believe you can work with and they have your best interests at heart. And more importantly than anything, how do they support their businesses in those uh, troughs of the roller coaster? Yeah, because that's the true reflection of a, a good investor is how they treat and work with their portfolio companies when things may not be going so good. Totally agreed. Um, yeah, again, we, yeah, we could we could talk about that. I'm unpacking that for for a long time. Um, last few, which we'll do sort of quick fire, quick fire round style. Um, this has come up again in the second series when we were talking to investors. And let's 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 be clear: there are some very good, open-minded, really talented people who understand the sectors they invest in are consistent, transparent. Those people are there. It's just there's this signal-to-noise problem about who you know how to identify those people. So, so but when, when you when you do come across them, they they shine very that's right easily and you notice them you know i've got no qualms in saying this I, I met a guy from ox capital recently called philip edmondson jones and um superb guy very honest very diligent and if ever we were going to look to take investment and he offered us capital i would i would take it because you can see he truly puts a lot of effort into the companies that he invests in and truly supports them once he does yeah yeah, there are, there, it, it, all of this conversation is about elevating on both sides the exceptional founders and the really, really good investors, the aligned ones, and bring them together as quickly as possible. And that kind of like, you know, like uh, making all the low-level functions automated. As we're going to get to this, like you know, the, so the ecosystem can automate all of that. It's really, the essence of founder tech, and then uh, elevating the good people. That's what it's about. Imagine if you imagine if you had a. Uh trust pilot for vcs and, <laughs> and well, uh, investors <laughs> well, well we, we, we could take that offline because propelia is kind of building that so i can tell us we are actually doing that uh we we, we call it co-pilots but um I, I'll, I'll talk to you about that in, in an offline conversation with really. the but yeah there that they, it's it's essential um the uh, last three um this idea of subsurface cues comes up that when uh, an investor is trying to evaluate an early stage founder or vice versa, like you were just talking about the guy from Ox, Ox Capital, um, what's your favorite subsurface cue that you think as maybe as an investor you would look for in a founder, particularly an early stage founder who's listening to this and goes, you know, what's the thing? It could be like we said, they know when they're most effective or they turn up on time or you know what I mean? Like what, or they they are have developed thought leadership because the point has come across from the investors when we talk to them. Is the, the... Sorry, to cut, I'll cut you short. Um, go, go none of it. any of none of that. None of any of that is go gut on. instinct. It's completely gut instinct. But based you on know, what? Based on what? You, it, you. I think that's the a sign of a good investor, right? Is that you can just tell within the first five minutes whether this person you're talking to has got something that is special. You know, you can just tell. It's like when you interview somebody, it's the same thing. And that gut instinct is far more compelling than any P&L or any, um, I, I think you can just tell. It's not whether they've done great kind of uh, thought leadership pieces or anything like that. I, I think that's what's far more important is this guy's special. You know, hey, What like, do you mean he, by that? What do you mean by that? Let's go back to the football analogy. Let's go back to the football analogy. Scouts on the sideline, and there's yeah, a like, you really talented you, person. You, you know, within five minutes of watching a player, whether they've got it or not. But what does that mean? That's because there's obviously a physical component, and there's a mental component, there's just an attitude, where there has to that specialness has to have components. Even if there is still a gut feeling, what's the components of that gut feeling around the founder? I'm trying to oversimplify it, here, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's that. It's like. You know, they've got it, right? And I don't think you can teach it. Someone is either special and is capable of great things or they're not. And the good investors are the ones who can spot that and have that gut feeling and can uh, and can spot that. Okay. I think that's my point. Okay. Um, founder tech is now rapidly emerging, point number eight, insight number eight. And this is the idea that, you know, there are all these new tools and platforms uh, generally acting as double-sided marketplaces that are, are increasing the agility, the fluidity, the traction of the early-stage conversation. So 
comes up again and again, but like seed legal seed fasters shortened deal flow times from weeks to hours or vested around the, the cap table and shareholders or landscape around transparency, VC transparency. What's your, if you've got one, what's your favorite piece of founder tech that you've either used or seen other people use? It could be DocSend, it could be Calendly. You thought, wow, that's just, that's really just kind of made something really, really kind of intuitive and fluid that used to take a long time. Um, call me a Neanderthal, but I don't really use many. Um, I, I, Doc, DocuSign and things like that are probably the ones that are the most useful for me and what um, we've had huge benefits from. Um, I don't really use anything like Seed Legals or whatnot. I know there's a great company in the fuel portfolio called CapDesk who who recently exited uh, for, and they've got, a, a, again, it was a shareholder management tool and things like that. Um, I think that I'm a little bit, I don't understand how the total addressable market for these businesses is that great for them to be hugely successful. Right. That has Do you know what up. I mean? That has come like, up. Like, yeah. how, how is there enough startup businesses in the UK that are raising capital in order for someone to have enough of a total addressable market to make, you know, be worth a billion pound? I, I, I don't. I just don't think there's enough total addressable market for startup businesses as the customer to allow one of these companies to make hundreds of millions. It, it, it's a good question. It, ha it has come up. It has been one of the pushbacks against founder tech. That it, like initially, I thought it may be a sector, and it's you know as an investable sector, um, which may be the case. Still, but it's it's become more. I'm sure you can have great comp. I think my point is that I'm sure there's great companies with great technology, but I don't know if they're um investable i don't think they're the companies where you think hey this is something that's going to grow exponentially and i'm going to get a huge return on my money i think that you can just be good businesses you know they can be profitable good businesses with some you know some reasonable ip yeah um, like i think you i just don't think the total addressable market there is for something to you know say you've got an emi management platform or yep something like that like how big is the total addressable market for something like that you, you can you'd probably max out at a couple of hundred clients and what would they be paying like i don't know 50 quid a month 100 quid a month for it That's yeah it. It, 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 like i said it's it's it that has it's commodity it's commoditized tech that anybody can replicate that's the problem with a lot of it none of it is really complicated technology that you i or a half decent developer could go and replicate in a couple of months yeah that's all that's also come up um, well, then nine is kind of the new. You've, I'm really pleased you pushed back on 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 this stuff, like because you know that's the whole point of these conversations is to take your insight from your journey and push back. Um, and this is like nine that the the ecosystem is being re rewired by integrated APIs. So, you know the, the the this is this is to your point. The future is that all of these things, all of these different pieces of founder tech, start talking to each other. And then that system becomes more than the sum of its parts and can then provide, you know, in real time so much more insight and information, particularly in the pre-seed seed state, uh, uh, space. And maybe that's what you're talking about. Maybe that's how they achieve huge amounts of value. By all yeah, and you need consolidation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need consolidation, don't you? Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting insight there. Is it, is it a consolidated, you know, or is this idea of founder tech simply about what we're talking about, the behaviours, the ethos, the outlook, but you know, it's it's just a description of behaviours rather than than a sector. Um, let's finish off um, on what was true to sort of Propelia's focus, which is found a market fit. Um, I make absolutely no claim to sort of uh, to inventing the term found a market fit. I, I didn't, but it, it's still remarkable to me that we've we've essentially been as accelerator in this space for about a decade. Um, and started using this term two two years ago or something like that. And for me, so much of what we're talking about comes under the banner of founder market fit. When you haven't got the metrics uh, around product market fit, it seems such an intuitive term and cousin to product market fit. Why do you think, if you think it's a valid term, um, and even when you Google it, like, you know, I come up, Propelia comes up, very few other, there's a Forbes article, there's a couple of other bits. It, it's really under underserved. Do you think that's symptomatic of what we're talking about, about this sort of, if, if you're not even using a term that makes sense, right, um, you can call it founder product market fit, you know, whatever you want to call it founder solution, but it's just not being used. 
why do you think that is? Do you think that is a, a reason to sort of finish on that? Because it just feels like by not diagnosing something, you're not looking at it in, in, in the right way. Um, just be interested in your view in, in closing on that. It's not a term I've really come across, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of trying to decipher what you you define as founder market fit. But um, I don't think there's such thing as a founder market fit. I think that you've got a founder VC fit because what each VC looks for is different. Um, and they don't all look for the same things, unfortunately. Like if you said to a founder, right, you need to have uh, unique IP, you need to have solid financial metrics which show growth and a reduction in burn rate or improvement in your EBITDA. Yeah. You need to have at least 10 plus clients with a year's worth of traction. You know, and you think, right, all of those things together, that sounds like a really compelling business. But if you took that to 20 different investors, some would say that's what they look for. Uh, some would say that it's not. Others would say they're not interested. You know, it, so unfortunately, there's not a single... Uh, kind of group of metrics which say that you it gives you a market fit for investment yeah well and it depends on what stage of investment you're looking for you know are you pre-seed are you seed are you series a are you series b because things at series a and series b that you look for are very different because that's when you're looking at growth capital when you're looking at growth capital it's a very different number of metrics and things that you want to look at compared to being pre-seed or seed, whatever you want to call it, because the terminology is so loose these days. I don't know what any of them mean. <laughs> um, I, you, I, 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 I just want to say this. I mean, this, I mean, this openly is that if feel, I feel like you've really put this through its paces, almost like a good continue our football analogy, like a really good session or workout, and it's been really, really great to hear you push back on it. Um, and I can, I from t- having this proper conversation, you know, I can kind of really get a sense of how you work and orientate and i think that's the way i think you address the problem um and 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 and, you know from your from your own business point of view but also from your own outlook i think is quite rare um in in a very good way in a very very focused calibrated like you know what you know i think you know what you don't know and i think that's been really really refreshing for me to it's it's the most anyone's kind of pushed back against the ideas which is which is great so i really appreciate you you doing that and kind of turning up in that way um, because I don't think anybody's right or wrong. Everybody's just got their own views and opinions. Of course, um, of course. Well, no, there may be some right or wrong. Answers, I don't there know. There may be some right. <laughs> yeah, there may be there may yeah. be some right or wrongs, but um, yeah, there's definitely know, some. Be... There's definitely some some bad faith, you know, acting on both sides that is wrong, right? It's it's it's, it's you can point to it and say that is not healthy or useful or whatever, and we can at least, at the very least, weed that out, right? We, if we just wait, we did. Is we did the word where where that out? I'm not sure you said. You know what I mean. Got rid of that behaviour. Then it would, like you said, that it would enable the really good people on both sides to shine. Because when you get to that, as you pointed out, it's very evident when you hit a really good founder. Uh, Carl in the first episode of this series, you you hear him talk. You're just like, this is an incredible founder. I said he's like giving you a masterclass. And you do when you meet investors that are really good. I'm about to go to an, an investor event. You know, that early stage, and you know when you just sort of milling about start to. You could tell, and I agree with you, but I think what's muddying that and maybe what this is all about is there's so much sort of noise and bad actors that can enter the market that it does drag those people down, right? It does stop the efficiency from emerging. And I think if we can just get rid of that, that might be something, you know, really worthy to sort of focus on in itself. And I hadn't I hadn't seen it like that until this conversation. So thank you. Just before we close, is there anything that you want around Moot uh, people to be aware of when they're listening to this? Is there anything useful to you that you're looking at, how they reach out? We'll obviously put in the show notes how they can get in contact with you. But is there anything, just as a last thing, if people are listening to this, I'd really like to talk to Nick or or equally you would like to talk to the audience and go, I'm I'm interested in talking to these people? Uh, Yeah, I mean, without kind of being self-plugging, I'm always interested to speak with uh, established and fast-growing e-commerce brands and founders as well. Um, I love having these type of conversations and learning from each other and sharing knowledge and networks and connections. So if there's anybody else out there that would love to chew the fat and kind of share stories and share views and hopefully um, potentially work together, then I'd love to have those conversations. 
Okay, great. Well, we'll put how they can reach reach out to you in the show notes. So, Nick, thank you very, very much for the time. Um, appreciate what we must be close to an hour. Uh, yeah, so it, a- absolutely fascinating. Congratulations on your uh, EY award. I hope it's sitting on, the, on the desk somewhere. Uh, I assume you've got some kind of physical thing uh, that you can look, that you <laughs> yeah. can look at. Um, and um, yeah, th- again, thank you. Thank you for really sort of immersing in kind of like the, the, the process here and really pushing back. I, I really, really value it. And I think some, there's three or four things that have never come up on the podcast that have been super, super interesting. So thank you. It is an evolving. No, thank you for having me on. Appreciate it. No, pleasure.